0: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?
1: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Kristen. This is Molly. So Molly, as you well know, I was a ballerina <laughs> for a little while. And by a ballerina, I really mean I just took ballet classes a lot. I'm sure you serious. are a ballerina in your heart. In my heart. Yes, I was. I, um, because
1: it seems pretty important something. to you.
0: Yeah, it was. It was uh, really important to me. At one point, I had to choose between playing soccer and ballet, and I chose for some reason ballet and, uh, and went for it. I had a lot of good friends, a lot of great memories from it, but, um, we decided that we should do a podcast on ballet because it is a very stereotypically feminine. Uh, pastime sport. Right. Even as a non-ballerina, I have fond memories of going to the Nutcracker every year. Oh yeah, and if you think about the the ballet audiences, you know it's usually you know the kind of silly stereotype of the girls dragging their boyfriends along to go to the the boring ballets. But uh, we wanted to do this podcast, and so I decided to take the t- the lead on researching it and kind of figure out what we wanted to to focus on. And I ran across this very poignant biography of a dancer named Raven Wilkinson that opened up a side of ballet that never really occurred to me. Mm -hmm. And that's this issue of diversity and flat-out racism in classical ballet. Mm -hmm. So let's learn a little bit about Raven Wilkinson and why she's so important.
1: So in 1954, Raven Wilkinson became the first African-American woman to be hired as a permanent dancer by a leading American ballet troupe. And, um, it caused so much scandal that in Alabama, the Ku Klux Klan came and confronted her dance company on stage. Now, this is, she was so light-skinned, according to this article in the New Statesman, that they couldn't even find her. Mm-hmm. Um, which maybe shows what a non-issue this was. But the quote from this article that you sent me that really just brought it home to me was she told, um, She was told after the Klan incident that she would never play a lead. And the example she gives is they wouldn't want a black white swan. Mm -hmm. This, you know, famed role of the white swan, they wanted the whitest swan possible. And that extended all the way to color of skin.
0: Yeah, and the thing is with this this uh, white swan quote that comes up, and this is in the 1950s. This same theme is echoed in an interview in Point magazine With uh, a a dancer from, I think the article came out in like 2005, who was essentially saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. She was in a rehearsal for, what is the name of it? Swan Lake. Yeah. (laughs) She was in a rehearsal for Swan Lake, and the director immediately told all the girls, I don't want any of you coming in with a tan. I want you all as pale as possible. And this black dancer is standing there thinking to herself, well... You know, well, what am I? What am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. So I think the, the the Swan Lake example is kind of um, kind of encompasses this whole diversity problem. Um, but before we get into into that aspect of it, why don't we just give a little brief history of ballet as an art form? Okay, It starts in Renaissance Italy. It's basically Part of, uh, lavish entertainment in the courts. And this would come along with stuff like painting and poetry and music that would be performed in these
1: large halls mm-hmm. for the wealthy class. Entertainment for the wealthy. Yes. And it spread all over Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, it found really strong toeholds. Pardon the pun. Oh, oh. In, uh, France and Russia. In fact, Louis XIV himself was a, was a pretty big dancer. Yeah. His title of the Sun King was actually derived
0: from a role that he himself performed in a ballet. Nice fun fact.
1: That was a fun fact. I was I was unaware of that. Yes. But I think the where the identity problems start and maybe where these race problems start is when ballet crosses the ocean. This very European aristocratic art form crosses over to the United States. And it sort of becomes a little bit it's it's trying to find its own identity. Wouldn't you say, Kristen?
0: Yeah, we have um George Balanchine, who was uh, born in Russia, uh, b- because after Paris, ballet really um, took on a whole new life in Russia. And so George Balanchine really brings that over to the US. He partners up with a guy named uh, Lincoln Kirstein, who was a wealthy American patron of the arts. And together they formed the School of American Ballet. and I think that they helped start the New York Cili- New York City Ballet as well. But who are they hiring as
1: their dancers?
0: Well, for Kirstein, like his original vision, according to this New York Times article we found, his original vision for this ballet corps was sort of a separate all-white corps, I think, of like six male dancers and six female dancers, and then a black corps of, you know, six males and six females. But that never really happens. It's still, it's very segregated.
1: Mm-hmm. To the point that black people started forming their own ballet, ballet troops. Like the most famous, it seems, is 1937 American Negro Ballet. Yes. But you've got this whole problem of separate but equal.
0: Yeah, because um, the ballet theater in New York had a Negro unit for one year in 1940. But a lot of the black dancers who were really successful were never going to be able to get any kind of principal roles in any mainstream uh, mainstream dance units, so they would actually just go over to Europe where they were more accepted and could enjoy more more prominence. Mm-hmm.
1: So this does seem to be a particularly American problem. Yes. I mean, Raymond Wilkinson went and danced with Ballet Russe in Monte Carlo, and it does seem that these international ballets don't have this problem of segregation that we do.
0: Yeah, and then uh, we do, in 1951, we do have Janet Collins, who was the first black prima, prima ballerina in uh, the Metropolitan Opera, Ballet, but she is just one person, you know, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden, like other, a lot of other black dancers are, are enjoying, you know, these lead roles at all. And then in 1958, we have Alvin Ailey, who forms the very famous Alvin Ailey dance group, but that wasn't necessarily just classical ballet. It was Mm -hmm. more, um, modern dance and he, um, very, intentionally described his dance group as multicultural because mm-hmm. he didn't want it just, you know, he didn't want just an all black or all white, you know, dance group. He wanted to in- incorporate, um, all sorts of ethnicities.
1: Mm-hmm. But like you said, not really classical ballet solely. Right. To get back to the ballet story, I think that we've got to talk 1969, Arthur Mitchell, and you see his name everywhere. He was with the New York City Ballet and then went on to found the Dance Theater of Harlem, in 1969. And people talk about this as sort of, you know, the door may not be wide open for black ballerinas, but this was the first big crack. Yeah.
0: And even with Arthur Mitchell's very successful career, um, just to give you an idea of how, how much of a, a, a problem there was with race in ballet, he was not even allowed to do a, perform a pas de deux with a white ballet dancer, female dancer. On television because it would have been far too scandalous. And it wasn't mm-hmm. until 1968 on The Tonight Show, which was considered far more progressive, that he was actually allowed to perform.
1: Right. And there were no black ballerinas to dance with. Yeah. That was the problem, right? It's the only woman who knew this other lead role was, was white.
0: Um And then in 1973, finally, we have Christopher Boatwright, who was the first black dancer to perform a lead in a full length classic ballet at the Lincoln Center. I mean, 1973, and Mm -hmm. we finally get it's like one person at a time. This is not representing some kind of movement Mm -hmm. at all.
1: Right. These, these landmarks seem to be very few and far between. And even in the last 10 years, it's not that we're getting more, um, black ballerinas taking on these big roles. They're just forming more and more segregated troops, it seems like. Right. And we're talking specifically about, a lot about, uh, black dancers. But I think that we can
0: also extend this conversation to dancers of other ethnicities, like Asian dancers and stuff as well. Like the, most of the prima ballerinas that you see out
1: there, are
0: very white, very European Mm -hmm. looking.
1: And I think that that brings up, you know, it is a European art form. And so I think that one of the weirdest, you know, things that people will come up and say is that the black body is not made to do this sort of European dance. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but that's what they get pushed back on. Yeah, that's been the number one
0: argument that comes up the the rationale I guess for these directors not casting black dancers of you know just saying like oh well you know they don't have the right body type because if you look at a dancer i mean it's you know there is a very specific ballet body i mean mm-hmm. it's a body that i don't have you know um but that really couldn't be further from the truth i mean the body type is going to vary from girl to girl regardless of her race mm-hmm. But in more recent years, there has been a more concerted effort with increasing diversity, specifically in classical ballet as opposed to modern jazz, hip-hop, etc. Um, for instance, uh, a woman named Casa Pancho in 2000 started Ballet Black with the London Ballet, which is um, a black dance unit that's specifically meant to promote diversity in ballet. And she even says you know, the, the goal of Ballet Black is that at some point it won't have to exist Mm -hmm. because there won't be an issue with just having these all-white ballet units. Mm -hmm.
1: So right now, let's say that we've got just a typical ballet group. And the three people who really can put people of more color on the stage are the artistic director, the casting director, and the choreographer. So the question then becomes do these people have an obligation of sorts to I mean does ballet need affirmative action to put it in very simple terms yeah and they say hey our job is just to put the best dancers on the stage and i think that this is where the ballet the ballet issue gets kind of interesting because it's very much a vicious circle you know these artistic directors say they want to put the best dancers on stage Today, that's most likely to be a white woman mm-hmm. because that's, you know, who makes up most of these troops. It seems like uh, the people of other colors are relegated to the core. Yeah. So they put those women on stage. So then little girls go to the ballet. And then the question is, if a black girl sees an all white performance, does she then think the world of ballet is closed to her? Right. And so then she may not pursue a ballet education, which just means that when there are, are auditions the artistic director has fewer people of different ethnicities to choose from.
0: Yeah, and this is something that was pointed out in an interview for Point magazine uh, by Virginia Johnson, who was a former star of Dance Theater of Harlem, which I think we should also mention has been on hiatus since 2004, so that's closed a huge door for black dancers. Um, and she said that this racial disparity stems from three major issues. The artistic vision, like you mentioned, um, culture, and economics. I mean, just from my own experience as a very kind of low-level ballerina, it was a very expensive sport to pursue.
1: Right. I mean, it's not like there are just a ton of famous white ballerinas and that, you know, black women just haven't, you know, cracked some sort of ceiling. Basically, they're Any ballerina is going to face a long, hard road. Oh, yeah. Making it big as
0: a ballerina is like winning the lottery, basically, in terms of odds. And we're also saying coming back a lot to black women specifically because since there are far fewer male ballerinas, you'll often see um, more black males on stage in lead roles than black females. Mm -hmm.
1: So let's go back to this idea of culture and what the black body means, which we addressed a little bit earlier. There are some good quotes in these articles you found about how if a, if a ballet needs sort of a earthy, crazy character, that's when they might cast someone of color.
0: Yeah. And it, because a lot of this just comes down to cultural stereotyping. There was um, an article that I read uh, talking about how Asian characters in ballets are usually portrayed as just this very exaggerated, like overly cutesy, pretty demeaning um portrayal of uh of Asian cultures. And it's sort of the same thing with uh black characters, like you said, they're usually portrayed as these kind of wild, untamed creatures rather than the more typical, you know, swan-like ethereal goddess. Mm-hmm.
1: I think there was one quote that said that basically that white women could be on that pedestal of being ethereal, of floating around with spirits and wood nymphs and, you know, nutcrackers. (laughs) Whereas, you know, they, an audience would not be ready to accept a black woman on that same sort of pedestal, which I think is just, you know, a very sad thing to think about in this day and age, that an audience wouldn't be ready to accept that. But they'll say, you know, that think about a black body, it might have curves, that that very stick-thin ballerina doesn't have. And so they'll try and say, you know, this this woman couldn't do this dance, whereas, you know, they don't even give her a chance to do the dance.
0: And I think that Emma Geller, who wrote a paper um, that we read called Racism and Dance, brings up an interesting point, and this is actually... Um, a quote from an editor for Dance Magazine. She says that bodies are idealized for specific political, economic, and social purposes of inclusion and exclusion. And so even though we think of, you know, ballet is just kind of perhaps a fluffy form of entertainment, when you look at these racial issues that come up with it, it takes on a whole new meaning of how we do and interpret specifically a woman's body, and then from there, women of different ethnicities.
1: Mm -hmm. So it seems like with everything else that's going on, and, you know, in this economy, ballet is already struggling pretty hard, Mm -hmm. as many of the arts are. Does the artistic director, does a choreographer, does a casting director make the, you know, concerted effort to bring more diversity to a stage, or do you think we'll continue to see more Segregated troops. I mean, it seems like right now the trend is that if you can't find a place in the classical ballet, you're likely to join a join a group that specializes in dancers of other ethnicities. But you know, it's I think it's sad that you'd have to choose between uh, a, a Nutcracker with made up of no white people and a Nutcracker made up of only white people. Well, and I think that
0: the the answer to that question isn't just going to um rest on the shoulders of these artistic directors at this very high level of uh, dancing, but actually down to the very early ballet and dance opportunities that are afforded to to kids you know because obviously it takes years and years of training to become a prima ballerina and um, one point that's made in a lot of these articles is that they're really just, isn't a lot of diversity in the groups of people who are auditioning. And that might have to do with the way that there are lots of outreach programs, dance outreach programs for um, minority young people, but there isn't necessarily a lot of follow through to really give them a support system and really educate them and give them the resources that they need uh, to take them up through the ranks and actually get them on stage as professionals. So I think that it's going to be a difficult problem a difficult issue to tackle.
1: Right. And you sent me a blog uh, from 2009 in which a Dutch girl who was black was part of a ballet group and she wore her hair in a bun as her, as her school required, but it was a braided bun. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they said that for anything less than a performance, it would just be too much effort to fix my hair this way. And she was thrown out of the school. Yeah. So it's, you're right that I think that there are a lot of obstacles just for young girls trying to get to a level where they where they would even be considered by um, a casting director. So it's it's um it's a pretty interesting thing to think about. Yeah, it was
0: definitely eye-opening uh for me because I just, you know, I really hadn't given it much thought to be honest. But looking at it now, it does seem like ballet definitely has a pretty significant diversity problem. And especially with all the different other dance forms that are out there that are probably becoming more popular than ballet, I think that I think that it might be high time for the people, the powers that be, to try to, even harder to remedy that. But Or will I mean, ballet die out? Or maybe ballet will wither away. An
1: elitist relic of the past. Maybe this is the swan song for oh. ballet. Okay, we better stop these backpuns. We've bad cracked funds. that nut. Yeah. So if you have experience uh, in your ballet class um, with any sort of diversity issue, we'd love to hear about it. What you think could be done to solve this diversity problem, if you think there's one in the first place. yeah, or us the p-
0: line. If you don't think it matters at all, who cares?
1: Mom stuff at HowSelfWorks.com. All those opinions. We want them. So I'm going to read a little bit of an email that came from Madeline about our bullying podcast. She has some advice for all the girls coming up in Rumors or Gossip she writes, I think it's really important to stay calm when rumors like that surface and girls being bullied should always talk to a friend about it because it really does get to be too much when you just keep it in. If you don't react to all the drama or rumors, it usually gets better. It doesn't matter if people talk bad about you. All that matters is that you and the people you care about know what they are saying isn't true. And all I have to say is what comes around goes around.
0: And I've got an email here from Danya, and she is in ninth grade and she is writing us about our podcast on burqas and she says most muslims myself included reject al-qaeda and terrorism although a radical side of islam does exist it's a very small side and she'll stay that way i just wanted to point out that misconception because so many incidents have occurred to muslims because of terrorism One time when driving with my mom, a man in a different car started cussing at her profusely because she was wearing a hijab. This had upset my mom and myself badly because my mom is a good citizen of the U.S. and will never subject to terrorism. There had been Muslims killed because of racial issues... And that should stop, as should the killing done by anyone for racial issues. So when it comes down to pro or con burqa, I'm pro burqa. And I guess you can say that it's biased due to my Muslim upbringing. But if anything, it all comes down to a woman's choice.
1: And that's my two cents. So thank you, Donya. And I'll read one more from Sarah, who writes about our parenting and gender podcast. She writes, When I was three years old, my father left my mother for another man. Like most kids of divorce, I was shuffled back and forth between households for the rest of my youth. It wasn't until I hit middle school that I realized my situation was different than most. Having two dads was all I ever knew, so to me it was totally normal. Not all of my friends felt that way and often kids would tell jokes at my expense. But as you addressed in your bullying podcast, kids will find something that makes you different and exploit it anyway to help climb the social ladder. So if I hadn't, so if it hadn't been my two dads that made me different, I'm sure they would have found something else to make fun of. Even though that part of my experience was negative overall, I am very thankful for my unique family. It gave me an enlightened perspective on love and relationships. You're lucky to find someone you love, man or woman, and no one has the right to judge it. My dad and my stepfather were together. For 26 years, and I am so thankful I got to have him in my life. My stepfather passed away just before Christmas of lung cancer, and we miss him dearly. So that's from Sarah. Well, thanks, guys, for writing in.
0: Uh, And as always, if you want to send us an email, it's momstuffathowstuffworks.com. During the week, you should please check out our blog. It's called How To Stuff. And you can also check out other articles that Molly and I have written, along with many other podcast personalities, at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?